Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Judy Gishoya. Judy is an interventional radiology fellow at the Dotter Institute at Oregon Health and Science University, as well as a co-organizer of Black and AI. Judy, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you, Sam. I'm very excited to be here. Uh, It is great to have you on the show. And I'm really looking forward to diving into uh, this conversation about the intersection of radiology and AI. Uh, But before we do that, how did you come to start working in this space? So uh, I had uh, some some interest and experience already working in digital health in medicine. Uh, I Just a little bit of background about me. I went to medical school in Kenya. And during that time, we were taking care of uh, HIV patients. And it was really difficult to sort of just use paper and Excel spreadsheets. And so I gravitated to sort of working on an open source medical record system. And so I started working, you know, deeply deploying, programming, and understanding how these systems are deployed. And so at that point, I I did move to the U.S. to do a master's in clinical informatics. And during that point, I decided that I wanted to get a clinical specialization just because uh, the truth is you get a little more respect if you have uh, clinical background, especially when talking to clinicians, but also that I realized that the, what I was passionate about, which was building health systems that are used by doctors, would be very difficult if you are not using them yourself. So I subsequently went to Indiana University for my radiology residency, and the program there allowed me to grow a lot. I had lots of opportunities to work on informatics on a national level. And so when I was attending the American College of Radiology annual meeting, and that's around also when Geoff Hinton, you know, publicly said that we should stop training radiologists, you know, there was this sort of force and this uprising of physicians who could do radiology and computer science to figure out why, you know, what was this uh, deep learning? Why was it a threat? And so I would say it was just right place, right time uh, that I got involved into this uh, sort of this fantastic intersection of tech and medicine. <laughs> and that uh, that uprising, as you call it, uh, resulted in a, a paper that you're the lead author on uh, called Phrenesis of AI and Radiology, Superhuman Meets Natural Stupidity. I think poking fun at this idea that uh, AI will put radiologists out of business. Yes. You know, Sam, it was very, very... Uh, First of all, you know, in medicine, we don't publish an archive, you know, and <laughs> I have, so, so it, it, it's really such a big shift, to be honest. And one of my really good friends, who's uh, Saptashi, who's on the paper, and we've known each other around global health and work as good collaborators right now. And, you know, I, it took me a lot of evenings to try and explain to him what radiology does. I would drag him to the reading room and just, you know, explain to him and just show him uh, the workflow. And, you know, at this 
when it came to sort of these adverts and I mean, Andrew M was saying, you know, we're doing better than radiologists. Every, I mean, every article every week just talked how, about how they had better performance, you know, and it was just sort of like, almost like, okay, maybe you should focus your efforts on uh, maybe these areas that would actually make you, make us all better. And to be honest, I think as someone who's also uh, an engineer, you get a little bit cocky when you when you start to solve problems. I think you always it's very easy, and I've suffered from this to uh, to dismiss domain expertise and decide, you know, I can do this, or oh, that's just a few lines of code. And so this paper was sort of like, to be honest, we we were hoping that it would get debated uh, at one of the debates in machine learning conferences, and maybe we get to debate it today at this week in machine learning. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's funny because we just uh, recently hosted our first uh, debate, if you want to call it, not a formal debate, but uh, a discussion around some recent uh, announcements by OpenAI uh, on there. This, uh, I'm not going to go into the details there, but it was really interesting and uh, we'd like to do more of it. So we'll talk offline about who the right people at the table should be for this debate uh, and maybe pull something together. But it sounds like you're saying that part of the problem is that the people that are out there proclaiming that we've solved radiology don't really understand radiology. Absolutely. Can you elaborate on that? Have you figured out what it is that they don't understand or just that they don't understand it? Well, there's just they don't understand it. <laughs> and, you know, and, and this is not also, to be honest, both sides can be very cocky. You know, the physicians, medicine is very uh, hierarchical. You know, you wait for your turn. In fact, I remember my my teachers would say medicine is a club. We decide when and who joins it. So there's also the, you know, the sort of like the nonchalant uh, comfort you know, you're like, oh, but I'm a doctor. What do you mean you can do my work? But there's also the other side of engineers. And so I think what's missing is people who sit at the intersection of both, you know, when you can easily describe things to the engineers and also sort of bring a little bit of reason uh, to the physicians. And, um, and, and you know, I have sort of... Um, that comes with a little bit of stigma, actually, because in medicine, if you do anything but clinical work, now it's being embraced, but it was always assumed that you're not good enough to be a doctor. You know, you're not doing well. If you do research, they're like, oh, yeah, he's good at research, but he's a terrible doctor. If mm -hmm. you do IT or deep planning, you know, people expect you to not do a good job. And so you have to fast fight that bias and stigma and do a very good clinical job as a doctor so that people get that respect from you. So there's all these uh, sort of soft skills that you have to stimulate even before we can have a candid conversation where we have you know, sort of engineers embedded in the healthcare system to to innovate, you know, and also to address problems that actually make an impact. And so, for example, uh, you know, we we notice a little bit. Um, so I think on online, uh, Sam Altman recently wrote on um, CNBC that you know he'd rather have computer radiologists more than human radiologists. And you have these sort of people uh, posting every 
every week and it takes a long time to be a radiologist you know and it's I think a little bit I, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine you become emotionally attached and it, it's not just an attack on a profession it becomes an attack on you you know you're not good enough you're you know or you're indispensable you know dispensable mm-hmm. and that that can be a really big challenge also just to reconcile that personal conflict and you know, I'm glad the radiology community has completely moved from this. I mean, if you look at the last year RSNA pneumonia challenge, the top groups, the top 10 groups were radiologists, you know. And um, if you, we have a new radiology AI journal, sorry, AI journal that's online, that's, you know, uh, good quality, peer reviewed, and it's focused on AI. I mean, so it's amazing what uh, in three years, you know, the rapid, that uprising, the rapid transformation that came to sort of a little bit guard the profession, but also uh, to bring a little bit of common sense in discussing what's the best way forward, because the truth is AI is coming. You know, we can just control and make sure that we are not wasteful and we get the benefit of it. It sounds like you're saying, on one hand, kind of the this constant... Uh, you know, derision of radiologists relative to AI, you know, isn't empathetic and it's not productive, but also that it's wrong. And the examples that people tread out to demonstrate that AI has exceeded the capability of radiologists are, uh, well, you tell me how you characterize them, you know, ch- you know, cherry picked or incomplete or, you know, not, not, uh, representative of what's actually happening in, in radiology, and maybe as a you know taking a step back from that that question, maybe a good way to get there is to have you explain you know when you think of you know radiology and kind of in its broadest sense and what radiologists are doing that image classifiers aren't doing. You know, maybe we need to understand that more broadly. Yeah, so. I think you have to think about the sort of like the pixel label, pixel work, which is like the computer vision. Can you diagnose pneumonia? Can you diagnose a fracture? Can you diagnose a brain bleed? And, you know, that's, uh, that's, I think a lot of people have focused on that, you know, because one, radiology as a specialty, we've always digitized our, you know, our studies and their reports. So as long as you have access to the data, to be honest, you don't need to be a radiologist to start to, you know, do some of this work. But, you know, some, I think there'll be two things. Uh, I think impactful AI will be embedded in healthcare institutions. In fact, today, if I was my advice to sort of healthcare managers, instead of buying, purchasing AI algorithms, I would say rent them or give them a place within your institution to innovate and do the work and experiment. And the reason is, I mean, you're a witness to this. The technology changes so much every week, you know, Mm -hmm. and for you to sort of, if you understand the purchasing process of, of medicine, it takes a long time. By the time you, I mean, implementations of electronic medical record system takes months and years. So if my implementation of your algorithm takes you know, nine months, 
by the time I'm using it, it's up, it's outdated unless you have sort of newer ways. And especially if you have to get FDA approval for every algorithm, you're not going to go back in nine months before you've made your money to get a new approval. And so um, I see a bigger role, honestly, a big, if, if I was to say, what do I think are the big grand challenges for AI in medicine is really the workflow processes. And you've, I mean, I'm a big fan of the podcast. You had um, a few guests recently, like, like Microsoft talking about the notes, uh, you know, enabling the voice transcription on the notes um, for doctors, because physicians spend a lot of time at home trying to catch up with documentation. And we also have things around population health management. So for example, um, I had a patient in May last year that I took care of and unfortunately had a um, congenital bladder disease, ended up getting end-stage renal disease. And this patient of mine would come to, to the hospital three times a week because that's all all dialysis patients come for dialysis three times a week. So literally someone in the healthcare system saw this patient. Unfortunately, 10 years ago, he had had an IVC filter. This is, you can think about this like an inverted umbrella, which you put in your vein to sort of catch the clot so that they don't go to your lungs. And he had this placed, you know, after an accident and it was never removed. If you such IVC filters, there are lots of lawyers who like to sue about this. And, um, but the, the challenging part was, you know, these filters are placed in multiple institutions, some are not placed under imaging. So they just, it's just like, you know, it's the, like the wild west, you know, about where these filters drop in. But at the same time, why couldn't we, we must have had, a, you know, an abdomen radiograph that was done for something different. And, you know, the person reading it, interpreting it may not really realize, okay, this is an end-stage renal disease patient who probably should not be having this old type of filter that would affect their veins. But, you know, sort of like that addition of value. So maybe the x-ray was done for constipation or something else. So they, fo they focus on the constipation and they answer the question, the clinical question that was asked before performing the study. But with an AI running on the background, and this is a project that we are working on uh, with Adam, my colleague at Emory, is to, to, to create an automatic, it's a computer detection uh, problem, and we create an automatic filter detector. We run this every night, um, you know, at the end of the day with all our radiographs. And if a patient has a filter, is anticoagulated, we send a message to their doctor and say, hey, the next time they're coming in, you know, you may want to talk to them about this IVC filter or refer them to a clinic to get this evaluated for removal. So literally a decision that it's not really anyone's fault, but just sort of uh, we are so narrow-minded and focused uh, on the clinical problem at hand or for the day, we completely miss the bigger picture of this patient. And that means he can never get a renal transplant because he doesn't have the right veins. Uh, they're all scarred down after the IVC filter placement. So this type of clinical questions, they they actually come out naturally when you when you are embedded in the healthcare system. You know, I can go on and on with some really low hanging fruits. And, you know, it's very difficult if you're not sort of 
bringing this you know cross pollination of teams to sort of answer these questions and uh that was actually i would say if you read this paper the biggest thing is actually the table uh, table 1 learning biases in radiology which is something that has been well studied uh by informaticians even before this era of deep learning and even give you some examples of things that you could do as an application that would definitely augment and add value to the radiologists. Let's let's walk through that table. Uh, what are some of the big biases that come up? So for example, um, you you could have a confirmation bias. This this is for example, I may say, you know, man, this is pneumonia. And you keep searching for evidence. You know, you go back to the electronic medical record system, you call the doctor, you're like, oh, you think this is pneumonia, right? So you have sort of this preformed bias and an AI tool could probably scout all the information that's relevant already about that patient and present it in a consumable way for the radiologist to interpret. It could also give, you know, based if the AI tool was was sort of not blind to their previous studies, it could say, you know, uh, Judy, some of these studies that have been uh, done in the past, which have a similar uh, sort of pixel appearance like this, were interpreted by these five radiologists who, and we definitely know there's high variability, but we said most of the radiologists thought that this was um, something else, like tuberculosis, not pneumonia. And so it just gives you, you, you can get differential or alternative diagnosis and you know, then contextually be like, okay, maybe maybe it was a pneumonia or just raise the possibility of both uh, diagnoses, which I think is a big value add. Uh, something else that happens a lot is this satisfaction of report or satisfaction of search. And uh, actually satisfaction of report, which is different. So for example, if you saw the previous radiologist who read a study said, oh, you know, I have, this, this is cancer. And if you read the report before looking at the images to form first form your mental representation and understanding of what the problem is, you could say you could perpetuate that diagnosis sometimes even when it's wrong. And so, one some of the deep learning uh, techniques that can be help helpful here is, for example, volumetric just measurement. You know, you could measure. Uh, the size of the aorta or the size of a tumor over multiple studies. I mean, that that task specifically is actually kind of repetitive and tedious for a radiologist. It's easier for me to have these representations, you know, on images and presented easily. And I can be like, okay, that's that looks like accurate measurements. And the computer is, we know this, it's very accurate at determining volume and maybe even more consistent than radiologists. And so it can sort of, uh, help instead of just me glancing and being like what we call eyeballing and being like, oh, that tumor looks the same size. It can help uh, sort of even give more additional findings or additional data points to be like, yeah, I can tell you that this tumor grew by 20%, which, you know, even just understanding maybe an event, a timeline of the patient, maybe they got changed their chemotherapy three months ago can have an impact more than, because 20% change in a tumor, in a patient on chemotherapy versus one who's not on chemotherapy completely means different things. So there's always these sort of things that are going on. It's not just sitting at a computer, looking at the image and be like, okay, this is pneumonia. There's always this clinical context. And I feel if if you had an AI assistant or whoever, an assistant at the back who was consistently 
you know, knows the, the correct information to send to you because the EMR, that is the electronic medical record system, is another monstrous a dump of information, would just prevent, present you just-in-time intervention that made sense. I think those are some of the true augmentation and true, actually, benefits we can reap from uh, AI. And um, some other examples could be, um, you know, uh, the satisfaction of search I mentioned, and this because sometimes you just see the tumor. So, for example, maybe we usually get some studies around uh, CTs of the of the neck, and uh, you know you go in there and you see a big fracture, maybe you know compressing the cord. I mean that's very dramatic and drastic, and you call the ordering doctor and you tell them, you know, I see a big fracture, and you know this is probably a patient who just has you know, came in because of trauma, but you completely miss the big cancer that's just at the edge of the film, you know, on the upper lungs, because you, you know, you're happy, you're like, okay, I found the findings, this patient is going to get treated this way. And those incidentals are really the places where radiologists shine, but the AIs could learn our blind spots and just ask, you know, have just like another assistant that helps me uh, be more cognizant of my blind spots. And this is maybe not something documented, but this is how we learn, you know, every time you know what you've missed and what you've caught and you start getting better. And, uh, you know, like my search pattern, every time I look at a city abdomen is to repetitively look through the pancreas because those pancreatic tumors are very subtle and, you know, are places where you can make a huge difference if you have early diagnosis. So I think we we have real good areas and, uh, the reason why I actually just focused on bias is because this we know this exists. We know that there's a big cost of um, medical errors and that there's a, a pretty, pretty big um, opportunity to save costs and also uh, to reduce death because medical errors is the third leading cause of death in the United States. It strikes me that this whole area of... Uh of bias applied to radiology and, and AI is paradoxical in the sense that you could easily argue that the existence of bias in human in radiologists uh, is the reason why we should be kind of all rooting for AIs to take over and for all these stories about, you know, AIs outperforming radiologists to be true. At the same time, these AIs are all trained on, you know, data sets that were labeled by humans and the, the biases that you've outlined. You mentioned, you know, three or four here in the paper. You've got, you know, eight to ten. You know, these are all kind of embedded in our training data sets. So, you know, the example you mentioned with an image that's got, you know, the big compression fracture, but you know, is labeled as, you know, perhaps in a training data set is labeled as such, but not labeled for the, you know, the cancer that's at the fringe. Um, you know, we're kind of baking that into the AIs we're building today. How do you kind of pick apart that that paradox? And is that something that you covered in the, the paper or in your research or thinking about this generally? So actually, we haven't covered this. And um, I think, you know, this fairness um, and transparency uh, for radiology, first of all, Sam, this is a huge, 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 
huge area. Actually, this is one of the areas I'm going to be focusing on as I begin my faculty position um, later this year in July. And one is even just the explainability, you know, like why did it get here? You know, uh, you know, this idea of the black box AI, and this is not a problem. You know, we always know that ImageNet is the sort of the parent that <laughs> all these uh, AI tools, at least in computer vision, are, are trained in for radiology. And the moment you say, yeah, yeah, we started from dogs, cats, and aeroplanes and cars. I mean, the radiologists, and, and it, it goes back to the, you know, the earlier discussion we had during this session where I said there's a little bit of soft power because when you say, oh man, we started from cats and dogs, then you're very far from replacing me or this, I mean, how, how do you come back to grayscale imaging, which is radiology? But, you know, so there's one area about a gap in having more explainability, but the issue around even bias, even not um, the application and the downstream consequences on policy and patient outcomes. The bias, I see radiology, and I have to tell you that the, the engineers who are working on this are not looking at these sort of questions, uh, as far as I know of. Why maybe the, the AIs that we'll start to build help us open our eyes to the biases that exist in medicine. We know this, but maybe it's that maybe the AI revolution will help us sort of, you know, uh, open this, open up these biases and come up with systemic changes that actually end up improving our, our patients. And so, for example, uh, there there's you know with the hospital scoring and the surgical scoring, people get very dinged for readmissions within 30 days or. Um, performing surgeries with poor outcomes. So what, what the doctors do, this is not documented, but you know it, is you self-select, you know? So if, and also there's self-selection for specialties. So there's a reason why most of my calls, I get them in the middle of the night. And at that point, the excuse is that the patient is not a good surgical candidate for a procedure because, you know, it's the middle of the night. And so we have all these subtle things that you as a doctor in the healthcare system, you kind of know, but um, the the people building these AI tools are a little blinded to. And we don't talk, to be honest, um, with, we don't talk about them as biases in, you know, in, in sort of like the stricter sense and sort of like this new discipline around bias and fairness and accountability in AI. They're just things that happen, you know? And... So maybe we will reap benefits, but only if we start to look at the correct uh, sort of uh, information and again, work with multidisciplinary uh, teams that we can be able to address this issue. And specifically, if you look at, for example, the engineer who gets, let's say you go, you buy a bunch of data and you come in and say, oh, I trained on pneumonia. How will they know that they completely use the wrong data set if they're not working with radiologists? So the, I think it's going to be sort of this um, union of both teams realizing that no one knows it all. And we will discover things that are embarrassing and things that force us to rethink how we, we provide healthcare. But it's only going to come if the hype is not, I'm going to replace a radiologist. Because you will just replace a radiologist with another radiologist. Maybe one who doesn't get tired because they can keep going as long as they have electricity. But it, it, the subtle biases will be perpetuated and maybe amplified because 
I mean, if there's no, right now we don't have a framework for continuous monitoring or mandates for continuous mon monitoring in production. And we will continue to experience those things. So I know I, I was in a presentation where uh, the Harvard group uh, had trained an AI to detect breast cancers. And, you know, they, they got collaborators. I think this will be a big deal uh, to validate the algorithm around Detroit. And... Uh, it really caught a lot of cancers in Detroit. And they posed the question, why do we think it caught a lot of cancers in Detroit? And the reason was the patients who come to uh, the Harvard healthcare system come for regular mammograms for screening early, and the Detroit patients came in late uh, when they had the diagnosis, you know, had a lump and they already had cancer. So if you didn't understand who was coming to the healthcare system, you'd be bragging how your AI is performing better, yet it just represents how healthcare is delivered and the health-seeking behaviors of the two different populations uh, in both areas. So the paper kind of invokes this this idea of natural stupidity in the title, and you outline kind of three behaviors that you label as kind of representative of this natural stupidity, uh, kind of the things that you see uh, AI researchers talking about when they're not in close collaboration with subject matter experts. Can you outline those for us? Yeah, so um, we sort of picked up some areas and um, one was wishful uh you know, mnemonics. And I think this has been amplified, honestly, by the media. And also, like, when leaders of groups tweet, you know, that, oh, we are much better, or we are the same as, you know, any specialist. And um, so, for example, one of the things that came up actually around the ChexNet pneumonia uh, paper was that there are many types of Pneumonia, and actually, as someone who's worked in global health and developing countries, um, that you we when you take care of HIV patients, it's very different type of pneumonia. There's clinical pneumonia and radiologic pneumonia. So by just saying pneumonia, you know, everyone will be like, "Oh man, that's really amazing." But um, when it comes to sort of like rationale, just reading a negative chest X-ray, for example, on a HIV patient does not mean that they are, it's negative for disease. You could say there are no findings, no radiologic findings, but that does not always translate to negative for disease. Can you elaborate on this distinction between clinical pneumonia and radiological pneumonia? So, um, for example, radiologic would have a finding. So you may have like um, a consolidation that would be pretty obvious. So for example, a lobar pneumonia or multifocal pneumonia, but the patient may, may depending on the time or also when where they are in terms of antibiotic treatment, may not have radiologic findings because of the sort of like the spectrum of disease, or if they're immunosuppressed to not mount a response that presents as opacities that you can see on a radiograph, they still are sick and you can have lab tests and uh, just the clinical appearance of the picture and the history to help you diagnose you know, clinical pneumonia, but at the same time, their chest X-ray will be negative. So if your algorithm is only looking at one facet, just the X-ray, which is maybe probably the only data available for you to look at, then you'd completely uh, mislabel these patients as, you know, pneumonia 
negative for pneumonia, yet they have pneumonia. So not all pneumonia patients will have positive findings on a radiograph. Got it. Got it. And so advertising your marketing, your accomplishment as detecting, you know, some high percent of pneumonia without stating that it's radiologic pneumonia, which is a subset of kind of the broader things that a radiologist needs to be able to identify or that the medical community rather needs to be able to identify is misleading. That's what you're getting at there. Yes. And so what was the next one? So the next one is this assumption that human performance is dichotomous. So in this example, using uh, we, this sort of statement, we can say that you either diagnose pneumonia as positive or negative, okay? And a little bit, this is a bias of how the, the, the AI is allowed to give probabilities. You know, I may think that maybe 80% probability that this is pneumonia. But when you look at the performance, it's been compared to, you you just say, well, radiology, did you diagnose pneumonia or non-pneumonia? We, do, we completely omit that we also depend on uh, probabilities. And those probabilities don't come out as a percentage. But for example, if I read a study and say, you know, findings are most consistent or suggestive of malignancy and less likely infectious etiology, that statement to a radiologist has a probability. And even for the referring doctor, we'll know, okay, I should really make sure that there's no cancer here before, you know, going the rabbit hole of infectious disease. And this one, he says, okay, let's compare human performance and AI, but you have to also factor in the probabilities uh, of of certainty of diagnosis that the human performance look at. And so you can't just treat it as a zero, zero, one uh, phenomenon for human performance, but have a little more variability when you think about the machine performance. The other one we talked about was this idea of training with secondary data. And, you know, I I have to give full disclosure here that I really love to study how humans work with technology, not just AI. And we know know that data is a problem. Uh, The big institutions have the data. But even when you have the data, it's not well labeled. And like I think you exactly said, uh, you may have a CT for compression fracture, which was dictated as such, but if it completely omitted the uh, the tumor, incidental tumor, then you perpetuate sort of those biases. But this idea of um, secondary data, I think is we, we, we say that it's not enough for you to come up and just use secondary data without a prospective validation trial where you're head to head with the radiologist in clinical practice and say, I'm better than pneumonia. You know, and the examples I give here are, for example, you could say, it's not unusual when you're reading at 7 a.m., you're reading the ICU films, you just say stable. And stable, it doesn't mean normal. You know, and if your algorithm doesn't, your NLP um, tool doesn't recognize this, then you could, this, especially these groups tended to be classified as negative, but you could have a patient who's very sick, intubated with bilateral chest tubes and pneumothorax. But what I'm trying to communicate to the ICU doctor is that nothing has changed. The tubes and lines are in stable position. The appearance, the opacities on the chest X-ray are stable. So it helps them determine, okay, is the patient 
you know, getting better, but that's not the only metric that they use. But, you know, when I'm looking at tubes and lines, I'm checking, have they moved in position so that they need to be repositioned? Because that's sort of the purpose of an uh, an ICU team. And so to, to say that you're looking at a one-time, you know, uh, look where you sit some radiologists, three or four, have them look at studies, and then you come up and say, man, I can do better than radiologists, I think is inaccurate. Who, which, you know, which radiologists? Are you doing better than the chest experts? Are you doing better than the resident who's just starting out to be uh, a radiologist? I think relying on secondary data is not bad, but I don't think it gives us enough mandate and enough platform to say that we are better than a certain profession. And we need, and calls for a calm, and discipline to identify that we do need prospective trials to figure out how the human mas- machine assemblage works to uh, to augment or be better than radiologists. Yeah, I think what I'm hearing here is that, well, several things, but one is that, you know, when you think about kind of the capabilities of these algorithms, what really happens on the ground, the multiple parties involved, the actual nuance of these diagnoses, they don't necessarily translate to very well to uh, kind of the the way some of these academic studies have been uh, presented, but also that, you know, as a, as a community of radiologists, you're not, you know, it's not like kind of sticking your head in the sand and, you know, waiting for this AI thing to go away. You know, what I'm seeing, at least from you, you know, maybe you're way more sophisticated than your colleagues, but it sounds like uh, the the field as a whole is recognizing that AI can be a valuable tool. You know, let's try to work together to apply it to uh, the problem in a more uh, sophisticated way that better reflects the way, you know, what that community really needs. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, um, so one of the other things, the uprising was that the American College of Radiology, which represents, you know, a lot of radiology has over 20,000 members, came together and set up a data science institute. And one of the things that they, you know, they have been working on is setting up these writing use cases. And honestly, those can bring a little bit of calm to say, okay, if I want to work on this, maybe this, these are done by several people, several radiologists, and, um, and they come together and say, hey, this would make much more sense if I was working on this. And... And, you know, I think that's been a really good way to sort of bring some calm. And you actually, there can be a win-win, you know, you can build things that we need and we'll use them and uh, sort of aligning yourself with sort of these um, initiatives and not, you know, going around the world and doing your own innovations, uh, I think can be a win for an entrepreneur. The other thing that, you know, for radiology, what we've started to do, I've, I've been doing this from uh, December 2017, is organize a monthly journal club uh, on AI for the residents and the fellows. And we also have some faculty radiologists who join in. And this has been fantastic. And just bringing those dialogues, bringing engineers and bringing radiologists together and looking at papers and um, digesting this material. And I think it's been 
personally, it's been a fantastic experience to do this, but also to see also sort of like an understanding right right now it's you know i know there's hype and there'll be a new person who posts something but it's more of like okay i i think i i can start to see the role that i can play and where this can be beneficial and i think that's that's great and i also see a change in tone even in terms of the new the newer leaders when they speak uh the recently launched Coursera course by Andrew Ang i was listening to it on my flight yesterday and you know, he literally shows what machine learning can do and what it cannot do with an example from radiology and states machine learning can learn from 10,000 chest X-ray images or, you know, just trying to say that from a large number, but machine learning cannot learn like a radiologist who can just have three or four images of pneumonia and a short blob of text. And it just this sort of learning that occurs. And some, it's a little difficult to to describe how actually that learning occurs because the way uh, we do it is you go in, uh, you you start to work on a, an apprenticeship model and you all of a sudden are left on call at night and you just don't realize how much you've learned when the other doctors come in to ask you a question and you're like, oh, I think, I think this is, you know, this is this or this is this and, and, and it just brings your confidence. Uh, I would, in fact, we are going to do this. Actually, we're going to start to um, maybe use some of the techniques that we are seeing, for example, when people use uh, YouTube to teach games and try and get representations of the learning process, some of the tasks that can be of how uh, especially radiology residents learn and uh, bring this uh, human machine assemblage um, that is based within the system that keeps learning and knows when to augment. And I think this will start, uh, will be probably one of the earliest efforts to understand the future of work uh, where radiologists work with AI. Sounds like at least in what you're seeing, being published by Andrew, there's maybe a, a broader perspective or some recognition that there are some things that radiologists are good at. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Judy, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with me. It's been great discussing your perspective on uh, the way AI is impacting radiology and the kinds of things we need to move forward. Absolutely. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm a big fan. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.